0: Hello, and welcome to Danley and Friends. I'm your host, Ryan Danley. On this podcast, I seek to spread joy by connecting you with my friends and other people who are doing positive things in their community and in the world at large. I also seek to spread connection through encouraging open dialogue, having difficult conversations, and exploring new ideas and concepts. There are a couple things I want to talk about today. One of them, in particular, is the concept of money. And within that, billionaires, and particularly Jeff Bezos, as I've been having conversations with a number of people about whether or not billionaires are ethical and whether or not they should exist. And also, if they like Jeff Bezos or not, based on different things that he's done. Uh, One thing lately that has popped up is him going to space and people tend to say he could have done so much good with the money that he spent on a vanity trip to go to space. Can't really argue with that. But I'd like to point out a few things. We'll get to that a little bit later. So before we start out, let's talk about money. What is money? Well, according to Investopedia.com, Money is a medium of exchange. It allows people to obtain what they need to live. What we did before money was we bartered. And bartering was a way that people exchanged goods for other goods. So if I had a donkey, but I needed a wheelbarrow, I could trade you my donkey that I didn't necessarily need for the wheelbarrow that I did. This became difficult. Trying to transact day to day because each time I had to come up with a different agreement for each person that I was transacting with. So while my donkey might have a significant value to someone who doesn't have one, to the donkey farmer, it doesn't. And so each time with each person, I would have to assess what they wanted, what they needed, and what I had to offer. And they would have to do the same. For me, this method lacks transferability and divisibility. Someone must always have a desire for the things that I have, and I must always be able to find that person in order to be able to trade. So this pairing of desires needed to happen often in order for me to be able to conduct business. In reality, it doesn't. It's difficult. And so your ability to store value fluctuates wildly depending on what you have. Thinking about something like bananas, bananas spoil. And some people like them at different times. And so if you're the type of person that likes a banana when it's toward its green side of its life, I only have a couple days, you know, maybe a week to sell you my bananas before they're no longer valuable in your eyes. But if you're like me and you like them with a little bit of dark spots on them when they're a little bit sweeter, you're like, actually, come back and see me in like a week or two because I don't want those green bananas that taste like plants. Those people can keep them. Or what would happen if my banana spoiled or got bugs in them and got ruined? Can you imagine your money spoiling? Like you show up at the bank and you're like, uh, yeah, I would like to withdraw $200. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry, Uh, they're maggots in your money, and it's gone. You can't use it anymore. Yeah, that's what people had to deal with when you were bartering with things like fruits and vegetables and other perishable goods. So there's a lot of steps between that and money, but eventually we got to money. And if you go to the United States Bureau of Engraving and Printing, And you check out the history of U.S. currency. You'll see it started in 1690 with colonial notes. The Massachusetts Bay Colony, one of the 13 original colonies, issues the first paper money to cover the cost of military expeditions. The practice of issuing paper notes soon spread to the other colonies. So, they skipped a lot of steps explaining that, but it sounds to me like... These dudes were just sitting around in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Because you know with some dudes, there were were no women involved in this. It was a whole bunch of white dudes sitting around, chilling in Massachusetts Bay Colony. And they were like, how are we going to pay for these military expeditions? And they said, shit, let's make it up. It sounds like, (laughs) I mean, I'm no money expert, but that's what this website sounds like. So can you imagine just like being like, hey, they're making money over there. They are making their own money. Maybe we should do that. That's absurd to me. But I guess that's kind of what's going on with cryptocurrency right now. It's like, you know, people are just making their own cryptos, so maybe that is what's going down. But I digress. 1739, this man Benjamin Franklin's printing firm in Philadelphia started printing colonial notes with nature prints. They had unique raised impressions of patterns cast from actual leaves. And this was an innovative and effective counterfeit deterrent to notes. People didn't even know how he was doing it until centuries later, which is wild. My man was ahead of his time. Great dude, you should read his biography. It's a wonderful book. A couple of them, actually. So uh, one is written in the form of like a letter to his kid, and uh, the other is about him. 1775, the Continental Congress issues a paper currency to finance the Revolutionary War. So again, these dudes just are making up money out of thin air. That is what is going down. And if you know anything about money, you know that that hasn't changed. Anyhow, continental currency was denominated in Spanish milled dollars. It didn't have anything backing it. And without a solid backing, and without Benjamin Franklin's fresh, innovative counterfeit deterrent, these things were easily counterfeited. And so the notes lost value quickly and it gave rise to the phrase, not worth a continental. The next major development was the Coinage Act of 1792, and this creates the U.S. Mint and established the U.S. Federal Monetary System. It set denominations for coins, and it specified the value of each coin in gold, silver, or copper. So these were backed by precious metals. And precious metals have value because they exist in limited quantities. And that's about it. Other than that, we like them because they're shiny. I've been trying to figure that out for years, and that's what it comes down to. If you try to figure out why gold is valuable, it is because it is shiny. You can't do anything with it. You can build some stuff, but who is really out here building you know, microchips and doing dental implants or anything that requires gold? in their everyday life. Have you ever been standing around and someone's been like, oh, damn, if only I had some gold right now, I would be able to do that thing that I need to do. Not one time has that happened to me in my life. People have asked for hot sauce more than they have requested gold of me in different scenarios. But money tied to precious metals, which is a good thing because precious metals exist in limited quantities. And so the government couldn't just print an abundance of money. They had to physically have the gold, silver, or copper to back the money. And so they couldn't create more money without mining more gold, silver, or copper, and finding a place to physically store it. Money was directly tied to precious metals until 1933 when the United States began restricting the ways that you could redeem your money for gold or your dollars for gold. By the end of 1976, the U.S. fully abandoned the gold standard. In fact, one of the conspiracy theories surrounding John F. Kennedy and his assassination was due to Executive Order 11110 that President Kennedy signed. It was an order for the Treasury to issue certificates backed by silver bullion as well as to mint silver dollars that would be considered money. And so this was considered a push for what's called sound money, or again, money backed by precious metals because this limits supply. Well, some people think that that's why he got his head blown off, is because he tried to return us to sound money. I don't know if it's true, you make up your own story and do your own research as they say these days, but my man signed the executive order on June 4th, 1963. November 22nd, 1963, my dude was dead. Head all over the place. 1964, Treasury Secretary C. Douglas Dillon halted the swap of silver certificates for silver dollars. And on June 24th in 1968, Barely five years after the executive order was announced, swapping dollars for silver coins ended, and America went right back to the exclusive Federal Reserve System that we know and love today, where the money printer goes "brrr!" So your money that you know and love today is backed by nothing, except the fact that we all believe that it has value, and that the government promises that it has value. So, essentially, that we all believe in it. It is a medium of exchange, and it is a store of value that is convenient for all of us. So that is money, in like the smallest of nutshells. I became super interested in money after I had my spinal cord injury in 2019. I was always interested in it because I live in America, and I used to want the dopest things. I wanted the mansion, I wanted the Ottomar Piguet watch, or... You know, the finer things in life, as Jay-Z says. So I always had this interest in money. But after I got hurt, I started getting these medical bills in the mail. And I was like, oh, shit, I have to do something. And I was concerned about my earning potential in the future. You know, I'm not going to be able to travel as much for work. I can't do any manual labor. So what am I going to be able to do to earn money? What are some creative ways that people earn money? Which led me to how does money work? What is it? How do I get more of it? Because it seems like in the world, at least in America, the only way to operate is to have money. The only way to have the freedom at the level that I want, the freedom for no one to be able to tell me what to do, for no one to be able to tell me what color the font should be on the PowerPoint slide, Or who I need to email what to. For that freedom, in America, you need fuck you money. And so I set out on a mission to figure out how to make fuck you money. And how is it that people make fuck you money? And how do they maneuver their money? How do they operate with it? What decisions are they making? Where are they storing it? I started studying these people. I started learning how money worked, and I realized one of the ways that it seems the media charges people up about those in the 1% or the .01% is they often throw around a figure called net worth, and very lazily, or perhaps on purpose, they call it wealth. And so people tend to believe that that is how much cash that these people have. That that is how many dollars that they can go get out of the bank. So when people hear that Jeff Bezos' net worth is $190.7 billion, they're like, oh, he's got $190.7 billion. Why doesn't he take that money and do X? Well, it is much more complicated than that. Net worth does not equal income. That $190 billion is not this man's salary. He does not get that in a check. He does not have access in the form of cash to $190.7 billion. He just doesn't. Most of Jeff Bezos's wealth is tied up in stocks. He owns stock in so many different companies, from Blue Origin to Amazon to Airbnb to ZocDoc to Convoy to Uber to Domo to EverFi. This guy owns stock in a plethora of companies. And what happens is he invests in these companies in the early stages. And when these companies produce goods or services that increase their value, the value of the company goes up, and thus the value of his stock goes up, and thus his net worth goes up. So nothing materially changed. He still owned the same amount of stock in general. But the value of those companies went up, and so the value of his stock went up because his net worth is his assets minus his liabilities. Assets are things that are worth value that you own, like rental properties or stock, or uh, in some cases your home if you own it. Liabilities are things that take money out of your pocket. These are your expenses, Your bills. So why can't he just sell his stock and get the money and end world hunger? Well, there are a couple problems with that. The first is his shares are what lets him have control in Amazon. And it's a company that he built. I mean, should we ask of him to get rid of control in a company that he built? Okay, that may not win a lot of people over. But The second issue is if Jeff Bezos, the guy who started Amazon, all of a sudden started selling all of his shares of Amazon, people would freak out and they would assume that something was wrong with Amazon, which would cause the market to panic and it would drive their price low because price is based on perception. Price is based on supply and demand. And so if the guy with the Biggest supply of stock, all of a sudden flooded the market with his stock. It would drive the supply way up, which would mean the demand goes down. So, price goes down. People panic even more. They think something's wrong. They start selling their stock. It becomes worth nothing. And so, the majority of Jeff Bezos' net worth, I think it's $132.2 billion it would plummet. The value would just disappear. And that money would be, quote, gone. Kind of like the spoiled bananas. Well, where did it go? We fucking made it up in the first place. We assign value to money. People are willing to pay for Amazon shares what they're willing to pay because they think it has that value. Whether it's because they are analyzing the company and looking at the fundamentals and seeing that it's a solid business that produces consistent cash flow and increases profit year over year, or they say, man, this is a company that can get me anything I want from anywhere in the world in one or two days. This is amazing. And everyone uses it and they see that value. So let's just say that he gets $190 billion in cash money. All of his net worth, he liquidates everything that he has and can no longer do anything else because he is dedicating all of his money to this endeavor of stopping world hunger. Well, in 2018, countries around the world spent $165 billion on overseas development aid. That's roughly the same as Bezos' net worth around that time. World hunger did not disappear. It is still here. And in fact, the International Food Policy Research Institute broke down the costs involved in reducing world hunger by 2030. And so they looked at the investment needed and they looked at the annual cost to get a zero hunger target. And they estimated it to be $265 billion per year. So that is Jeff Bezos money gone. About, I don't know, eight months into the year. Obliterated. And we still have hungry people. What do you guys want? What do people want? Really? Why are people actually mad? Well, he could have used his money that he went to space with. To do other things he didn't have to go to space that's his money he made it he built amazon as the great philosopher aubrey graham aka drake says you decide who this should reside with we decided i got an amazon prime membership and i bet some of you do too Actually, a lot of people that I argue with about Jeff Bezos, they'll come at me and they say, hey, how can you like Jeff Bezos? He exploits his workers, he treats them poorly, and that's the only reason that he's a billionaire. I'm like, well, have you ever bought anything from Amazon? Well, yes, I bought something yesterday. Well, you are a participant in that same system. In fact, you're probably as many steps removed from the floor worker as Jeff Bezos is. Well, he could just do more. Jeff Bezos gave $10.1 billion to charity in 2020, the most charity of any person on the face of the planet this man gave away. He gave $100 million to two high-profile founders of nonprofits, Jose Andres, the celebrity chef and time cover subject, and Van Jones, the former Obama green job czar and CNN commentator, climate change activist. He said, do what you want with it, whatever you want. He committed 200 million to the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. Here, here you go, 200 mil. But nah, the dude that got me my Hello Kitty socks from China halfway across the world in a day does not deserve to go to space. He didn't even go to space, not even space in. He was space near. He was near to space. And people are mad that this dude who built this empire that employs millions of people went to space. That's wild to me. People ask, and it's a valid question. What about the workers? What about the exploitation of the workers? One question that I like to ask, and I don't mean this to come from a heartless place can you exploit a willing participant? Is it exploitation if someone fills out an application, shows up to the interview, gets told the details of what the job involves, and how much they're going to get paid in exchange for doing those responsibilities? They shake hands, they agree on it, they sign all the paperwork and they get their ID and they show up day after day after day. Is that exploitation? In the truest sense? I I don't know. Debatable. Very debatable. We'll just say that. But on the real, I do think that he should treat his workers better. But again, I don't think he has a line of sight to the things that happen on the plant floor day in and day out. I think about the corporation that I work for and how far removed I am from what happens on the plant floor, not even as the CEO. And think about all the stuff that the CEO has to deal with. Everything, every aspect of the company, every emergency. So it's kind of hard. I think it's just a culture of metrics and people trying to please those above them and if you know anything about how a job works you know that most people are just trying to keep their boss happy so that they can keep their boss off their ass so when the boss says can you go faster you go faster when boss says hey i know you said it takes a year to do that can you do it in six months you get it done in six months and how you stress out everyone involved by making your problem their problem, instead of being realistic and being a person and being like, hey, actually, that is unrealistic. Actually, it does take a year. We can maybe get it done in 10 months, but six months out of your goddamn gourd. We don't have to say it like that. You, you know, <laughs> of course, would say it nicer. You'd probably say something like, um, I believe we have a disconnect here in terms of the expectations on the timeline. This man, Jeff Bezos, probably has no idea what is happening on the plant floor. Does that absolve him of any blame or any responsibility for the conditions, especially now that we know them and are aware of them as the general public? No, I am not saying that by any means. But maybe we should tamper our expectations a little bit. One thing I find interesting is the latest statistic that I found states that Amazon now employs almost one million people in the United States of America, or almost one in every 153 workers. One out of every 153 workers in the United States now works for Amazon. So one out of 153 people decided that they're okay with being a participant in this system. So can you really... Put all the fault on Jeff Bezos? Or are these people partly responsible? Are the millions of people who purchase from Amazon on a day to day basis also responsible? I think maybe everyone plays a little hand. Another thing that comes up when it comes to Jeff Bezos is taxes. He doesn't pay his fair share of taxes. Can you blame him? In 2020, The government spent $6.55 trillion, or $6,550 billion. And guess what? There's still homeless people walking around. There's still hungry people walking around. There's still some people who aren't walking around because they don't have the things that they need to help them walk around. And that is one year of spending, $6.55 trillion. And y'all are mad at Jeff Bezos? You need to be mad at your damn representative. What type of machine, what type of entity, what type of enterprise spends $6.55 trillion in one year of its existence and still has as many fucking problems as the United States government? And y'all are mad at Jeff Bezos? Out your goddamn mind. Misguided. Don't be mad at Jeff Bezos. Be mad at those people in Washington. The United States has spent in excess of $133 billion on nation-building in Afghanistan. Yet, Afghanistan remains one of the poorest countries on Earth, with a third of its population chronically food insecure. Why? Why? If you think Jeff Bezos can save us, you are out of your mind. So is it really wrong of this man not to want to give more money to a machine that works as inefficiently as the United States government does? A country that spends $778 billion on defense, more on defense than the next 11 highest countries combined more than China, India, Russia, the UK, Saudi Arabia, Germany, France, Japan, South Korea, Italy and Australia. There's a 761 billion total together. We spend 778 billion dollars on defense. And the news will still have you fucking scared to go to bed at night and y'all are mad at Jeff Bezos. Now, don't mischaracterize this. This is not simping for billionaires. This is not some love of Jeff Bezos thing. This is just a call out of people whose anger might be a little bit misguided. Jeff Bezos can't do as much as you think he can do. And maybe your government can. And maybe they're just dragging their fucking feet. Maybe the reason that marijuana isn't legal is because it's more of a strategic playing card to say that you're going to make marijuana legal and that you support it. Because once you pass it, then you don't have that card to play anymore. But if you support it, you can keep people on an emotional roller coaster and say that the other side is fighting it, and they don't agree, and you're trying. But again, I digress. One of the things that I found that is beneficial about paying less in taxes is you have more money in your pocket. And what that allows you to do is to either grow your business and scale it, and make it bigger so you can have more money that you can do more good with, or it allows you to do good with your extra money. You can give money away to charity. You can help people in your community. You can do all kinds of things with your money rather than give it to a government who's going to spend it inefficiently. So what happens if I take this extra money and I buy more assets? My assets grow in value. And what happens when my assets grow in value? I can borrow against them. And when I can borrow against the value of my assets, guess what? That money doesn't count as income. So it gets taxed differently. And that's how rich people get around taxes. It's one of the ways. Because you use your income to pay off your debt. And that debt finances the things that you want to do. And so, voila, you lower your tax burden. These are things that you can do. The same rules that apply to Jeff Bezos apply to us. You think that they don't, but they do. Well, Ryan, I'm not rich. I don't have any assets. Well, what about a 401k? You can invest in a 401k. And you can send pre-tax dollars into an account that compounds. And so it'll grow faster. And basically you defer your taxes until later in life when you pull the money out after retirement. So you can do that. That's a way to lower your tax burden in the short term. Well, Ryan, I can't afford a 401k. Well, you can start a business. You don't need much. You can start a snow shoveling business with the cost of a shovel and whatever it costs to file an LLC in your state. And you can start to write off business expenses like business trips and meals and perhaps your uniform. It doesn't take much. To start a business. And the tax rules are made for business owners. See, you get taxed much differently on your income than you do on money from investments. There are, of course, different rules that apply um, in order to do this specifically, but one thing you can do is pay yourself through dividends as an owner of your business rather than paying yourself a high salary. And that way, you can save on your taxes. You can take money from the salary that you get at your 9-to-5 job and invest it into your business. And this lowers your income, your taxable income. So there are so many different things that you can do. Of course you want to consult an accountant. And you want people who are tax experts who are helping you do these things. You don't want to listen to a fucking guy on the internet talking to you on a podcast telling you about this stuff but a guy on the internet on a podcast can spark your curiosity and get you interested in these things and get you asking the right questions like hmm how can i lower my tax burden and put more dollars in my pocket with which i can do more good and spread more joy and give to more charities is that what billionaires do some of them Is that what everyone does anyway? Maybe that's a question we should ask. How much money of your own? What percentage of your income, of your net worth? See, those are two different things. What are you giving away? We're going to talk about that and more on the next episode of Danley and Friends as we continue our Jeff Bezos saga and dive deeper into taxes, generational wealth, money, and all things related. Until then, I'll leave you with a question. Why is it that people strive to build generational wealth and strive to leave a legacy and leave monetary and financial wealth to their children, but they despise Products of generational wealth. Children who were given things by their parents and made to benefit from the legacy left by their parents. Why is that? <laughs>